welcome to you as well. My name is Tim, and I serve as, as one of the pastors um, uh, here. It's, it's really good to have you with us. And uh, one thing we've been doing through this series um, is if you have any questions that come out of this uh, sermon this morning, we have a, a Facebook number um, or Google uh, text number. You can text in your questions. We'll answer them on Facebook Live tomorrow. Uh, the number is 913 465 96 5-3. So please, uh, it's a good way for us to be pushed as preachers and teachers and, and a way for you to, to just ask any questions you might have that I may not get to um, this morning. Uh, well, if that, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Genesis 3. That's where we'll be um, this morning. Um, but I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll, we will jump in. Let's pray. Uh, Father, the Psalms say that you bring the wisdom of the world to nothing. But your plans stand forever. You frustrate our plans and our grand ideas, but your word stands forever. So you say that blessed are the people who make you their God, the people that you reveal yourself to. And so we ask that you would reveal yourself to us now. For Christ's glory and in his name we pray, amen. Well, for the last seven weeks we have been looking at the stories that we live our, our lives by. Stories that our, our culture is trying to sell us, encourage us, get us to live our, our lives by. Uh, stories that they're encouraging us to build our lives around. And what we've tried to do uh, over these few weeks is show that when you look at these stories through the gospel lens, through the story of the Bible, especially looking at Genesis 1-3, through 3, what you find is that, that the Christian answer to these narratives, these stories that our culture tells ourselves, is not, is not just no. In other words, I don't think our posture as Christians to the broader world should just be arms crossed and eyes frowned and, and just sort of looking down on everyone. Like, how, how could people believe such, um, such incredible things? Because, one, we, we buy into these stories. Um, but, but even more, what I, hope, what I hope we've shown is that when you, you look at these stories we live by, um, stories we build our lives around, what the gospel says to each of these stories is, is three things. Is yes... But no, but yes. And what I mean by that is, is how we'll actually we'll unpack this last narrative for this morning. And the last cultural, cultural story, cultural narrative we want to look at this morning is, is the narrative newer is better. That our culture has this assumption that, that we're progressing, we're getting better, that human beings, given enough time, uh, with, with enough uh, science progress, enough technology, enough knowledge, uh, will create a more just society with less suffering, with greater freedom. That humanity is on this inevitable path, inevitable path towards getting better. And that today, as human beings, we're, we are better, um, we are, are more just, we are, are wiser, we have better technology. And therefore, it's not just that we've made the world a better place, we ourselves are better people than our ancestors. That's why you'll hear the phrase often, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Uh, you want, you know, history is progressing in this direction. Don't be on the wrong side of that because we assume history is getting better. That science technology is bringing about a better future. That leaders in Silicon Valley now, they talk openly about how in the future the problems of aging and disease and poverty and equality will be, be, be almost completely get, gotten away with or done away with or just completely transformed because we are progressing as human beings. And looking at that narrative through Genesis 3, I want to say three things to that. Yes, but no, but yes. Here's what I mean. First, yes, newer, newer is better. The technology has produced amazing 
results. And for many reasons, I'm glad I live in 2017 instead of 1917 or 1817. And for example, one of my favorite podcasts, The, the Memory Palace, uh, it tells the story of, of George Arthur Gardner in one episode. You, you shouldn't know who he is. Um, but Gardner, he lived in 1870, and one day he got a toothache, and so he went to his local dentist. And here's how the podcast describes what happens after his toothache and his visit to the local dentist. That for a brief time, and unfortunately for Mr. Gardner, this was during that time, Dennis put a dash of arsenic in the filling to kill nerves. In the obituary for the New York Times, the Times reporter wrote that over the next two weeks, no man died such a horrible death as Mr. Gardner. At the end of two weeks, all of the nerve endings in his head, except for his spinal cord, had been eaten through by gangrene. They stopped putting arsenic in fillings after that. So newer is better. Um, I'm grateful for, for that. And if that's TMI, sorry, I wasn't sure. But I mean, that, that's, that's how it was 100 years ago. A toothache could give you the most excruciating death imaginable. Um, or the economist uh, Don Bordeaux in, at George Mason University, he uh, recently made the case that you and I, if we're in the middle class in the United States today, which would be most of us in this room, uh, if we're in the middle class today, we are richer today than the first billionaire, John uh, D. Rockefeller, in, who lived in the early 1900s. And his point is, yes, Rockefeller had so much money, he, could, he had a place in, on Fifth Avenue in New York City and a house on the Pacific West Coast. He owned his own island. He was the first billionaire. He had all the money he could imagine. And yet, it would have taken him weeks on a non-air-conditioned train to get to where he was going, to get to his different houses. And once he would have gotten there, he would have essentially no way to communicate with the people he had left behind, with his family, with his businesses. Whereas us, on the other hand, again, for those of us in the middle class, we can travel anywhere we want. I mean, this year, this week, I'm going to go to Indianapolis and Detroit. I will not lose internet access my entire uh, time. I'll travel in air uh, air conditioning the whole way. And when it gets a little cool for the fall, I can kick on some heat if I need that. Um, that, that Rockefeller's billionaires or billions of dollars couldn't have helped him with a toothache, but we have modern dentistry. Life expectancy in that day was 55 years old. For us, it's 79. And even his billions of dollars could not have purchased for him the medical care that you and I have, again, as middle class uh, citizens, that's available to us and, and, and affordable to us. That we have better food choices, healthier food, better clothing, more educational opportunities. So newer is better. We've made progress. You think of some of the laws or the way society was constructed a hundred years ago. Um, We've made progress. Newer is better, but not so fast. Because with this creeps in an assumption that not just that we have it better than our ancestors, but that we are better than our ancestors. We are wiser. We are morally superior to them. That things are not just better, we are better. Which is why the, one of the first times I read Genesis 3 is, as, as an adult, I just found it to be so just insulting to my modern ears. Like a serpent and fruit and the things God says to Adam and Eve. Like it just sounded, it sounded silly in some ways. And until, until I actually let the text say what it was saying, um, it was easy just to write it off and say, oh, we, know be- we have better reasons for that today than, than what the Bible would say. And so yes, we, things are better. But no, what is, what is new cannot save us. And this creates some, some tension. And so to diffuse some of that tension, 
Uh, I want us to take a look at a video um, where many, even within our own culture, are starting to park, uh, poke fun at this idea that we're better, wiser, that more information and more technology makes us better than our ancestors. Uh, so take a look. It actually, it goes on for another two minutes and it gets even better, but I was like, I don't know if I could show f- a four-minute clip on a Sunday morning, um, or maybe I should have, I don't know. But uh, the, point, uh, the point I want to pull out of that is, is even as we learn something new, we make things better, um, we find out that our, with our progress often comes, we find we got things wrong. That we don't, we don't fully understand everything we know even now. And this, this short video even shows this, this assumption of, of newer is better, the fragility of that assumption, that sometimes newer is wrong. And so the question becomes, how, how do we know? And the only way you can know whether something is, that, that is newer is better is if you first know what is wrong with us in the first place. What needs fixed? What has to be made better? What needs to be made new? Is it, is it cancer? Is it heart disease? Is it violence? Is it war? Is it racism? Is it lack of economic resources? Is it the need for, for more educational access? That what, what is it that's wrong with us? That until you answer that question, it's hard to know that what's newer is actually better. Because we, we have to know what needs to be na- made new in the first place. And so the cultural story, newer is better, it, it assumes that what's wrong with us can be fixed through science or through technology or with more time. But there are a few, a few problems with this. And, and the first one being that reality is the most educated societies, it could be argued, have produced the worst evil. The most educated society, maybe of, of the mid-century, the mid-1900s, with the best universities, the best art and culture, where people all over the world went to travel to learn from, that, that, that place created the Holocaust. The Western world, which, um, which developed and, and modernized the, the university from the first century, was the, the, the part of the world that perpetuated slavery and the slave trade for, for several hundred years. That just because you're smart or you have a degree or you've read does not mean you're better. And second, technology is ultimately a double-edged sword. That on the one hand, as we progress in technology, we, we have more things available to us, and yet I would say, with technology uh, advancements, create the capacity for, for increased evil or increased good. That when Richard J. Oppenheimer and his team split the atom, created the nuclear bomb, this is how he said his team responded to the first nuclear test. So we knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed, a few people cried, most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. And so for the rest of his life, Oppenheimer uh, struggled with the fact that on the one hand, nuclear, splitting the atom created nuclear power, which could create uh, more energy, more accessible to those who are poor. But on the other hand, you can make bombs that kill hundreds of thousands of people at once with this technology. Which is why you'll have people saying, uh, like in Silicon Valley now, just more technology will be better. But on the flip side, you have all of these kind of dystopian warnings from cultural artists who have written books or, or movies who have said, more technology could lead to more evil. So stories like A Brave New World, Soylent Green, or 1984. Stories that see technolo- technological advancement as potentially a bad thing because they wondered, will human beings use this new power for good or for evil? That we cannot know whether newer is better until we first know what's wrong. What needs to be made new. What's 
what needs fixed. And I realized reading through Genesis 3, you may have just felt like, this is weird. Um, But here's what Genesis 3 says is wrong with us. Verses uh, 22 and 23. This is God speaking. It says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So what, what is wrong with us? You may not see it in the text, but there are three things happening in Genesis 3 that are wrong with us. The first, our problem is, is personal. That when we hear God saying, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, um, therefore we have to remove him from the garden. It, it, that sounds like God's being overprotective, or like, why, why wouldn't human beings want to know good and evil? Like, why, why, is God, why does that make God afraid? Um, but you have to remember, in Hebrew, to know good and evil is not just, it's not a mental knowledge. For Hebrew, knowing is not a mental thing. It's a, it's a full human being experience. To know something um, is, 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 to be de- is to be deeply personal, deeply within your will. So to know good and evil is not just to have a head knowledge of good and evil. It's to now decide for yourself what is good and evil. Now you get to choose what is good and evil for yourself. And God is removed from the, the equation. So now Adam and Eve decided, we know what's right and wrong. We don't need God for, for, for that help. And that is ultimately what broke them in the garden. And this creates a problem because remember, human beings were created in the image of God, specifically to rule the world, to be his representatives on earth, to take care of the earth, to take care of animals on the earth, to, co- co- to cultivate the earth, and to create a wealth and flourishing for all of creation, human beings, animals, the world itself. But now we, human beings, these creatures, we are going to use that power... As we see fit. We now decide what is good and what is evil. We will, we will do with the earth what we want to do with the earth. We are going to use our brain power, our creative minds, our technological advances. Now, however we want, whether it harms others, whether it enslaves others, whether it gets power over others. Our heart is now bent towards ourselves. And so we decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. And, and the power we've unleashed in the world has been that story since the garden. And to pull out sort of one example of how this works, when God is explaining to Eve what, what's going to happen now, he says, he says this to, uh, to, to Eve in this new cursed existence we now live in. He says, Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And what God's saying there is now in the marriage relationship, there's a struggle for power. And what was, what was supposed to be a... Um, a mutual self-giving and selflessness is now a desire for, for the woman to have power over the man and for the man to have power over the woman. And what God says to Eve in that moment is now, Eve, there's going to be an existence where the, the man is going to be abusively ruling over you. There's going to be, and, and you look through history, I don't think it's too much of a stress to say that the women have had it harder than men. And God's saying that has happened because of the fall. And that's not good. The marriage relationship, which was supposed to be two selfless, self-denying human beings, is now marked in conflict and fighting and dissension and struggle for power. And you take that out of the marriage relationship and into the rest of the world, into our workplaces and into our communities and into our friendships, and it's the same thing. It's a struggle for power. And the reality is there is not a technology that's going to be advanced that is going to make our hearts selfless. There will not be an app ever created that will help you love and forgive people. 
And so at the end of Genesis 3, God looks at us and says to human beings, you, you cannot have access to the tree of life anymore. That we in our current state cannot live forever because we're too dangerous. We need a healing now that requires we go back to the dust. That we die. That we be made new. And so that's what's wrong on an individual level. Our problem is personal first. But second, our problem is corporate. And if you were to read through the rest of Genesis and preach all the way through to Genesis 50, you would find that the problem in Genesis, the problem through all of the scriptures, is not just individual human beings, uh, uh, individual humans sinning against one another and creating relational conflict as individuals, but, but broken human beings now go and make cities. They go and they create businesses. They start governments. And so the, our problem, it's not just personal. It's corporate. It's structural. It's the systems that we create. And so the best example of this is, is Genesis 11, where some local government officials get together and decide they're going to create a really large tower. And the reason for the tower is clear. They think they are awesome. And they want to make a name for themselves. And in particular, they want to create a tower that says to God, God, we don't need you, and we can build our own tower to come up and talk to you whenever we want. And so an entire city gets together, creates tax policy and spends money and embarks on a project of systemic evil. And God intervenes. He stops them. And this is what he says when he intervenes. This is a very important verse, I think especially for our context. Genesis eleven six. Behold, they are one people. And they all have one language. And this is the only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, I realize there's a lot of confusing stuff around language there. Just sort of set that aside and focus in on the key point, which is what God is saying in this moment is when God sees people getting together to organize a government, organize a city, he's saying there is, there is no stopping what they will be capable of. Once, they get to, once these individual evil people get together, they're going to create cities and governments that are evil. As I've heard it put, one, one sinner plus one sinner doesn't equal two. That when sinners get together, it's, it's like evil is multiplied. And God is so concerned about this, this city government and their, the systemic reality they're creating, he intervenes and shuts it down. The evil is in, in the individual human heart, yes. And growing up, sort of the, the, the way I heard the answer to the world's problems being given to me from, from my own church context was if, if we just convert the world to Christianity and all individuals become Christians, then the, the society itself will be good and everything will work out from, from the end. But the reality is when I have someone come and work on my house um, and, and they're working on the foundation, I hope they have a good heart. But like I hope they know how to like make a good foundation so my house doesn't crash in on itself. And the reality is we are, we are so broken as human beings, even when we have good intentions, even when we want to help people, oftentimes the systems we create, the businesses we start, the governments that we lead, the cities we create, they, they create systems that make it, make it hard for some folks and easier for others. Make it evil for some and good for others. And what that means is that we, as we, as we live in our society, we don't just think as Christians, we need to convert a lot of people to become Christians and then all our problems are solved. No, we look at our government. How is our government creating systems that are, are fair for some people and unfair for others? How do our businesses create structures that create profit and margin and, and wealth for some people, but, but not for others? And as Christians, we're, we're comfortable with those questions. We recognize evil is complex. It's not simple. It's not just individual human hearts. But when we get together, as God says in Genesis 11, when we are one people and we all have one language, 
There's no telling what we can do together. And history bears, bears this out. And one of the things I think, I hope, my hope for the church is that we, we don't have a naive view of, of evil, which is that uh, typically when people look at evil, they say it's either all individual or it's all, it's all systemic. Or it's all, and Christians, we, have a very, we should have a very complex view of evil. Yes, individual human hearts are warped that, are, that do evil things. But then even when we get into systems and governments and tax structures, right, that, those things, even when we have good intentions, often create unintended consequences. And it's a theme all the way through Scripture, both in Genesis 11, but it's why in Ephesians 6, when Paul talks about the church's engagement in the world, he doesn't just tell the world in Ephesians 6, hey, go out and convert a lot of people, make them become Christians. He says that, yes, but he also says, Christians, beware of the powers and the principalities of this earth. There, are, there isn't just individual evil at work, individual people. There are powers, there are systems, there are, print, there are things beneath the surface, which is why when we get together and try to do really good things, try to create governments that promote justice or try to, to create businesses to create wealth for all. Oftentimes, there are unintended, unintended consequences because of the brokenness and the curse in which we live. Our problem is not just personal, it's corporate. It's why Leslie Newbegin, the theologian, um, he wrote this. He said, those who call for a Christian assault on the world of politics and economics often make it clear the attack belongs to the same order of being as the, the enemy to be attacked. The aim of the attack is to seize the levers of power and take control. What he's saying is like, if we just get more Christians in power, there will be better things that happen. And, and Newbegin says, no. He says, we've, we've seen many such successful re- revolutions, and we know that in most cases, what has happened is simply that the oppressors and the oppressed have exchanged roles. The structure is unchanged. The throne is unshaken, only there is a different person occupying it. How is it that the throne itself is to be shaken? The how, is the how is the throne to be shaken? That's the question we ask as Christians. This power, the power structure reality of the world, how do we, how do we shake that throne? <clears throat> our problem is personal, our problem is corporate. And, and as I mentioned a second ago, when Paul talks about um, the evil we encounter in this world in Ephesians 6, it's not just a personal evil. It's not even just a corporate evil, right? Powers and principalities. It's, it's also a supernatural evil. And I get it that it's weird that, that there's a serpent in here and a devil. And a lot of people have a very hard time with that. And if that strikes you as naive, I would just encourage you to hear the words of Romeo um, Dyer, a UN peacekeeper who was in Rwanda during... Um, the genocide in the uh, mid-1990s. And he was commanded to do nothing, basically to sit back and watch genocide happen. Here's how he reflected on his experience. He said, I know there is a God because in Rwanda I shook hands with the devil. I've seen him. I've smelled him and I've touched him. I know the devil exists and therefore I know there is a God. That as Christians, we believe there is a personal supernatural evil that wants to enhance all of the evil we're capable as human beings to, to increase poverty, to increase injustice, to increase racism, to increase genocide, to, to magnify the evil we are capable of. And that's why technology in the end cannot save us. Our problem is deeper than just some moderate improvements on the outside. There is, there is simply never an app that will be created that will heal your marriage. There's not a pill that you can begin to take that will make our government function in perfect Justice. justice. We, will, we will never know enough, have enough education to overcome the supernatural evil that is seeking our own ruin and destruction. And yes, we've made progress, right? Point one. I believe all of that. Newer is better. There's some really great things that have happened as human beings have, 
have progressed through history, but newness cannot save us. It cannot. And it's why when you get to the end of Genesis 3, God's answer to our evil is that we have to leave the garden. We are cut off from the tree of life. And that's the problem behind all our problems, is that we're cut off from the source of life itself, from our creator, God, from the place that he created for us to dwell with him. We've been removed from that. And between us and the garden, between us and the tree of life, is a sword. And so you and I are wanderers now. And the question Genesis 3 poses to us is, how are we going to get back into the garden? Past the flaming sword. How are we going to overcome our individual evil? How are we going to be a society that creates cities and governments and businesses that only lead to flourishing and only lead to goodness and only lead to, to healing? And how are we going to overcome this supernatural evil that, is, that seeks our destruction? How are we going to get back into the garden? That yes, newer is better. But no, what is new cannot save us. But yes, all things will be made new. And so when we get to the end of the story of the Bible, we hear Jesus, God, we hear him proclaiming at the end of all things, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. This feeling we have inside all of us, this feeling that drives and fuels this narrative, newer is better, is that that there is a day coming when death will be gone, when brokenness will be gone, when injustice will be overcome. We feel and we sense all of these things because that is the story worth living. Right? A story where in the end the earth flames out and we never, we never meet justice. Poverty is never overcome. That, that, that the, the, the cries of those who are crying out for justice are never heard. The reason why we don't think that story is true is because that's not a story worth living. What the Bible says is at the end of all things, God himself says, I will make all things new. And so you and I, even though we know we can't, we can't heal everything in, in this world, we keep fighting. We keep trying to get back into the garden. But science, technology, our our progress in education, it will not give us these things. Jesus alone can give us these things. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who can make your heart right. He is the one who can institute a power structure that will yield perfect justice for all alike. He is the one who will defeat the serpent. He is the one who will make all things new. And so it's why in Genesis 3, God doesn't have much to say to the serpent. It's all bad. But one thing he says to the serpent is one day there will be a son from Eve who is going to stomp on your head and you will die. And that promise is fulfilled in Jesus. And that Jesus can remove the serpent is the the sign of the first promise that all things will be made new. And if this is true, that all things will be made new for us in the end, then as Christians, there are two implications that we're called to live out of every day of our life. The first, we're called to make uh, to work hard to make things new now. Now, my favorite uh, all-time movie is is Hoosiers. Um, and being from Indiana, that probably does not surprise you. Being a basketball fan, that probably does not surprise you. Um, I've seen it dozens of times, and even though I know how it ends, I don't care. I'm going to keep watching it. In fact, knowing how it ends, like illuminates the struggle up until the end in so many different. Ways, And that's why I'm willing to experience it again. As you see the struggle, and in seeing the struggle, knowing victory is coming, it, 
It just, it, just, it just energizes you. And so as Christians, we know the end of our story, which is Jesus announcing from heaven, I am making all things new. And so you and I, in the course of our struggles, in the course of the ways we try to make this world new, we try to make a world that is more just, we try to love those who are forgotten, in the midst of that work, we don't work with a sense of depression or, or worthlessness. We know in the end Jesus is going to win this for us. So work hard to make things new. And as you do that, as you go about that life, think through two things. One is believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus will make all things new. That if you're someone who looks at society and, and thinks things are, are getting better, that you look at the way uh, medical advancements have healed diseases, you look at our own history, the progress against slave trade, but you stop short of believing the gospel as true. Why? That we want all these things for a reason. Because deep in your heart you know that there should be a place where cancer and tears and death and injustice and poverty should not exist. You know that. And it did in the garden. And it will again when he makes all things new. And we have enough, I think, history to show the human heart is too flawed to create this world. Which is why Jesus offers it to us by grace. So receive him and trust him. You don't have to earn this world. You don't have to work for this world. Get, receive it freely by grace. And for the Christians in the room, keep coming back to the gospel again and again. Do not let the newspapers be your authority. The scriptures are your authority. The newspapers are but a footnote. And yes, there will always be hard things in society. There will be things that are not right, that are unfair, that are unjust. But this is not the end of the movie. Read Revelation as many times as you have to. Rereading it this week, I was, I was just reminded by Jesus saying, write this down. I am making all things new. Do not forget this. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. Don't let the, the, the burdens of this world weigh you down. Believe the gospel. So believe the gospel one. But secondly, if you're going to work hard to make things all new, um, you, we need to work on the structures and not just the people. And so as Christians, we are called to preach the gospel to every person. And yet we also want to create a city that we're more flourish. We want, to, we, want, we want justice to prevail. It's one reason why we have a conference coming up on October 14th, um, um, Friday, October 14th, called CG 2017, uh, because we want the economic flourishing of all in our city. Not just, not just a few. We want everyone to flourish economically. We have a job that's meaningful and to contribute to the common good. We care deeply about our city it's also why we as a campus are working with a church plant in the Ivanhoe um, neighborhood in Kansas City, a community, a part of our city that's been devastated through bad economic policy, through bad racial policies. But we believe in the end Jesus will make Ivanhoe new. And we want to work with a God who's already at work there making things new and participate with the people who are working with God in that place. We don't just want to work on individuals. We don't just want more people coming to faith. We want better systems, better structures. So work hard at that. Whatever your, your Monday to Saturday job is, work hard at it to make things new, both in the individuals you encounter by believing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel to them, and also by, be cre by creating a place that, that is better for all. So one, work hard to make things new, but two, remember, do not forget, Jesus alone will make all things new. He is the Alpha, He is the Omega. He is the only one who can truly take this broken, cursed world and get us back to the garden. 
And the reason why is at the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they're removed from the garden, placed with the tree of life. The place where there was no death, no disease, no sadness. And it's really a brutal moment when God, he removes them from the garden and then he puts a sword swinging every which way to say to them, you can't come back. And yet, reflecting on that text this week, I noticed something. Why, why wouldn't God just destroy the tree? Or destroy the garden? Right, why the, I mean, flaming swords are, are cool, but like why, why leave the garden and, and keep us out? Why wouldn't God just destroy the tree? Why, why put a sword there? Why put judgment between us and the garden? And if we try to go back into the garden, we will be judged and die. And the reason is because God's not done with us. God is not done with you and he's not done with me. And Jesus is the one person who can make all things new because he is the one person who didn't deserve the judgment of the sword. He's the one person who deserved the tree of life. He's the one person who never deserved to leave the garden. And yet he's the one person who left the garden freely of his own accord to come save you and to come save me. And he went under that sword. He suffered the judgment that you and I deserve so that we could have the garden back. And so when you get to the end of Revelation... It, Jesus is clear. You get the garden back if you come to him in faith. And some of the last words written in Revelation are these. John says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. And on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So healing not just for individuals, but for societies, for races, for nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So how do you and I get back to the tree of life? How do we overcome death? How do we overcome evil? Not because we are progressing towards inevitable Greatness. We aren't. Not because we ourselves can overcome death. Not because we can put right all that is broken. No, we can get back into the garden. Back to the tree of life because Jesus got the tree we deserved. The cross. And he climbed our tree so that we could have his. Let's pray. Lord, we are... We are wanderers, working hard to, to create a new garden, a new place without death or without tears or without brokenness. That's a, a just place. We long that our hearts would love you. We want to do what's right. We long for a world that's, that's good, that lifts up the poor and disenfranchised. And for those of us who want to believe that all things will be made new, God, would you give us hearts of faith to trust in and live for Jesus' promised salvation. God, for those of us who do believe in Jesus, help us to live in faith every moment. Faith of a good God who will never be done saving us. And so with that, God, we pray the prayer of Jeremiah. Heal us, O Lord, and we shall be healed. Save us, O Lord, and we shall be saved. Amen.